This morning, we're going to return uh, to the book of Acts. So I would invite you, if you have your Bibles, uh, to turn to Acts chapter 4. We're going to begin reading at verse 32, and then we're going to go through chapter 5, verse 16. And so I'm going to read the word of the Lord in your hearing. So listen now to God's word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it, a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part for yourself of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have conceived or contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his lies. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in and, and they found her dead, they, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would come now, and as all of us, all of us, your servant who is preaching your Word included, as we all sit under the authority of your Word, I pray that you would speak by the power of your Spirit, do your Word, and do that work in us, making us more like our Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, I pray, God, that you would shape us after his image and make us more like him as we hear your word preached and receive it into our hearts through faith. We pray, bless us 
by the power of the Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. There are many songs that speak to the grace of God and the impact of that grace in our lives individually and corporately as God's people. Grace, brothers and sisters, isn't just the foundation of our salvation, it is also the fuel for our living individually and corporately as God's people. It is grace that is the fountain of those streams of mercy never ceasing that the songwriter speaks to. And that grace, brothers and sisters, if our faith is in Jesus, that grace is ours. It is on us. It is at work in us. And it is at work through us. Among the many things that Luke says about this growing community of God's people, he says that they were a community in which the grace of God was active. He says of them, and great grace was upon them all. And don't miss this because it's not, just, it's not just a tag on phrase. In many ways, this phrase gives shape to the whole context of the narrative that is in front of us. This community in which God's Spirit was actively at work was a community in which God's grace was at work. Indeed, that the Spirit was in each of them meant that grace was there, for the author of grace was in them through the power of the Spirit who is God. And I just want to I just want us to be encouraged today, brothers and sisters, that the same Spirit that was in them is also in us. And since the same Spirit that was in them is also in us, it means that the same grace that was theirs is also ours. That grace, that great grace that was upon them is also upon us who are His church today. And that grace is there to work in us and through us the same principles that were at work in that early community. You see, because grace was there, was because grace was upon them, generosity was at work among them. Because grace was upon them, a healthy fear of sin was at work in them. Because grace was upon them, the power of God to transform people's lives was at work among them. Without grace, without grace, without grace, these things are not active. And yet we need these things to be active if we're going to be witnesses for God, the witnesses that He has called us to be in this world of the coming kingdom made possible through the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, where we are, where we are weak, where we are weak is in those places where we are not leaning into that grace. Where, where we are weak as the people of God is in those places where we are not leaning into that grace of God that is on us, where we are not resting in it, where we are not turning or trusting in it, where we are trusting instead, where we are trusting instead in our own power, in our own resources, where we are holding on to our own material goods, where we are being dishonest about 
our sin, where we are not bringing people to Jesus and Jesus to people, we will be weak and ineffectual as the community of God's people. But where we are leaning into the grace of God, where we are trusting in it, where we are resting in it, these things that were active among them will be active among us as the people of God as well. So, because grace is upon us, because it is on us, because it is at work in us individually, because it is at work among us corporately as God's people, we have all we need. We have all we need to flourish in those areas I just mentioned above. So, I want to encourage us this morning to believe that that grace is ours, to believe that it is ours, to believe that God's face is turned toward us in grace to bless us to be a generous community, to bless us to be a community that deals honestly with our sin, and to be a community that demonstrates God's power to those around us. And so what does it mean for that grace to be upon us where it means those three things that I mentioned above? And I want to unpack that for us this morning. This community upon which God's grace rested was a community of generosity. It was a community in which sin was being dealt with. It was a community in which God's transforming power was at work. So, let's look at each of these things in order. Grace, grace, and generosity. Grace and generosity. Listen to the way Luke describes the early church again in these verses. He says, now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him, brought the money, laid it at the apostles' feet." And if that sounds familiar, that, if that text that I just read to you sounds familiar, it's because it is, similar to the description of what took place in the community in chapter 2. The grace of God that was upon this community manifested itself in an incredible display of voluntary generosity, an incredible display of voluntary generosity. Now, sometimes we focus in on the voluntary nature of that giving here, and in chapter 2, almost as uh, more of a kind of strong attack against any sort of obligation as it relates to our private property, right? It's ours, it belongs to us, and, uh, and so we want to make sure that we make people understand that what was happening here was voluntary. And we rush to the voluntary part almost as a shield against anyone telling us what to do with our money. But this type of thing misses the point, in my opinion. It misses the profound point that this community of believers who had received grace, who understood the lavish nature of God's grace toward them, were moved to respond to that grace by exercising a generosity that was consistent with that grace. Indeed, the fact that it was voluntary only shows how deeply transformative that grace had been in their lives. They didn't have to be told to give. They didn't need anyone to convince them to give. God had responded to their need with an incredible display of grace. How could they do anything else but show the same grace to those in need in the community? 
How could they, if they had material goods, not share them with their brothers and sisters who were in need? Indeed, to sit on those resources while others went without would be anything but consistent with the grace of God. And I love here that this display of grace was monetary, because if there's one place where we need the grace of God to motivate us, it's often in this area of releasing our hold on our money. I have heard that you are a generous congregation, and I believe it. <laughs> and yet I also know the temptation that money provides. I know how easy it is to not tithe because other priorities are pressing in on you. Don't say anything, just let the pen drop. I know how easy it is to hold on to our resources in judgment. You don't like something that's going on in the church, so you hold on to your resources until things start going the way you want them to go. I'm not saying anybody in here does that, I'm just saying I heard that that happens in places. But meeting the needs of the body, meeting the needs of the body, helping those in distress in particular, but also just doing the work of ministry requires a generosity that is produced by the grace of God on us. If you are a recipient of that grace, how can you not be a benefactor of that grace? You got it? If that grace has been lavished on you, how can you not then, by the power of the Spirit, turn and lavish that grace on others? Though the giving here was a voluntary act, it was. Though the giving here was a voluntary act, it was produced by the reality of God's grace resting upon His people. People gave, they gave out of a realization that God had given to them. And they were a people, they were a people who had been graced and so demonstrated that through their giving to the needs of their brothers and sisters in the community. That is the only way it could be said that no one in the community had need because people upon whom grace had been lavished were now lavishing that grace upon others. And so the real question before us is, do we actually realize truly recognize that we have been graced. And the reason is that our, our, our giving as individuals and our giving corporately to each other's needs won't be all it can be without this. Do I believe that what I have as a result, is, is a result of God's graciousness? Or do I have it ultimately because of me? Do I have it because of God's grace or do I have it because of me? And if I have it because of me, then I will hold on to as much of it as I can, only releasing what I want to rather than what's needed to meet the need. But if God's grace is the foundation of what I have, then I trust that grace both to enable me to give generously and to supply what I need as I do so. And that was the principle that was at work when Paul said in 2 Corinthians 9, he says this, and I want you to hear it. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way 
to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The God of grace, listen to me, will not stop being gracious to you as you are being gracious to others. You got, you got it? You got the principle? If, if you are gracious, the God of heaven and earth who owns everything will not stop being gracious to you as you are gracious to others. Amen, people of God. Amen. So it's not just an, it's not just an action here that we're called to, but a belief a belief out of which those actions flow, a belief that we really are the beneficiaries of a gracious God who will not stop being gracious to us as we are gracious to others. Right? And where we are not generous, you know why? It's because we don't believe that. It's because we think that if we don't hold on to everything we have, maybe God actually won't do what He says He will do. I know I'm telling the truth, right? Like, like maybe God won't actually be as gracious as He's saying He will be. So I gotta really hold on to it for myself just in case. I gotta, I gotta have a security blanket just in case God doesn't show up and, and, and is not as gracious as I actually say He is. I'm not even talking to y'all, I'm talking to myself now. (laughs) Talking to Tony, I'm telling Tony to trust the grace of God so that I can be gracious and help those who are in need, those who are in distress. Amen, people of God. For you know the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, he became poor for your sake. How many of y'all love that verse? (laughs) Right? We love it. We love to hear those things because it, it just, it teaches us, it reminds us of just how good our God is. That God who became poor so that you might be rich now says to you, Trust me and help your brothers and sisters. Amen, people of God. Grace and generosity. Grace was upon the church, and so there was a profound generosity that existed among God's people. And I believe that about you. I do. I believe that you are a generous congregation. I'm encouraging us, really, to say, let's keep, let's keep growing in it. <laughs> let, let, let's, let's be even more generous as God gives us the ability to do so. Amen, people of God. Grace and generosity, grace and sin. The grace of God is upon us. Not, it, not, it, not, it doesn't just fuel our generosity, it fuels how we deal with sin. After hearing about one example of that generosity uh, in the actions of, of, of Barnabas, who, who sold a field and, and, and brought the proceeds to the apostles, we, we are told the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And while people, were, were, while people were voluntarily giving to the needs of the community, selling their property, bringing the proceeds to the apostles for distribution to the larger community where, where the needs were evident, Ananias and Sapphira were actually behind the scenes plotting a deception. They, they had agreed together, uh, 
it seems, to sell a piece of land and keep back some of the money of the sale of that land for themselves. Now, there was actually nothing wrong with that part of the decision. The, the property belonged to them. They, it was in their right to, to, to do with the proceeds what they felt was, uh, was right. The property, it belonged to them. And they had every right to keep some of the money back. And, and no one would have been angry uh, about that. They, cer- they certainly would not have been rebuked uh, by Peter for that. The sin, the sin lie in their decision to tell the apostles that the money they were giving to the church was the full amount. It was the full amount that they had received from the sale of the property. So they said, this is, this is what we sold the property for, and this is what we're giving to you, knowing that they had actually kept part of the money back for themselves. In other words, they were, they were representing themselves as more generous than they had in fact been. And they were flat out lying for the sake of gaining a reputation in the community of being super generous or more generous than, than they were in fact being. They, they, they were sinning, right? And God's discipline, God's discipline upon Ananias and Sapphira was severe. Both Ananias and, uh, and Sapphira, Sapphira um, died after being confronted with the knowledge of their deceit. Indeed, Sapphira was given the ability to retract the lie and that Peter asked her if the money she was giving really was what they sold the property for. Now, it would be easy to get caught up on the severity of the discipline of God here or to question the nature of Ananias and Sapphira's faith. Were they really believers, right, or not? And the text actually doesn't, doesn't provide an answer to that question. And so, it's really kind of pointless to speculate. What seems clearer is the motive behind God's discipline. And we read this in verse 5, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. And then we read this in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Ananias and Sapphira had They had received God's grace. Remember, they are part of the community upon which this grace of God is resting. But rather than resting in that grace and letting that grace move them toward righteousness, they had instead decided to presume upon that grace, to test it in the sense of seeing if they could get away with something that they knew was wrong. And I just want to say that before we judge Ananias and Sapphira, (laughs) that we look into our own hearts, that we look into our own hearts, and that we ask ourselves if we too are not guilty at times of presuming upon the grace of God, presuming upon the grace of God, of using grace as a license for our rebellion. You see, God's grace should actually produce in us a healthy fear a reverence for God that causes us to deal honestly with our sins, to not hide them nor cover them up, but rather to deal with our sins honestly before the Lord. And I want to suggest to you that God's grace was at work even in this harsh discipline and that God was teaching the rest of the community to take sin seriously, to not play with it, to 
understand its destructive consequences, to be ready to confess it and repent of it, that we may find His grace to overcome it. And remember, God disciplines us as His children. God's grace is not inconsistent with His commitment to discipline us as His children. In fact, the Bible says it this way, God loves you. You are His children, and that is why He brings discipline into our lives to enable us to deal with our sin. It's not inconsistent with the God's grace, the God who favors you, the God who favors you, who loves you, and so has promised, has promised His corrective discipline in our lives to turn us away from our sins and toward righteousness. And we can count on that. And while we may cringe at the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, I think it's also important to remember that God knew Ananias and Sapphira, that He knew their hearts, that he knew the trajectory of their lives, that he knew what action was right and just in this situation in response to their actions, and that he knew where they were in terms of their faith and their trust and their hope in him. Amen, people of God. And so God's grace is there. It's there for what? For what purpose? To teach us to say no to our sin, to take it seriously, to not hide it, but to confess it. Ananias and Sapphira chose deceit. They chose to cover their sin with deception rather than come clean about what they had done. The call is to, is to us actually to take our sin seriously, to free from it, flee from it by the power of God's grace. This is why the text mentions, mentions twice that fear came upon them all, a healthy fear that enables us to deal honestly with our sin by the power of God's grace. Amen, people of God. And so the call here really is to confess our sins. And of course, there are sins we confess privately before God and sins we're called to confess publicly to others. Ananias and Sapphira's sin was public and that they were publicly parading themselves as more generous than they had actually been. And so God's discipline was public. They tried to hide it but God would not let them. And so if we've wronged a brother or sister, we should go to them. We should tell them our sin, and we should seek reconciliation, working to restore whatever loss our sin has caused. If we committed a sin that is of public nature or that publicly wounds the cause of Christ, we should confess that sin, publicly seeking reconciliation, working to restore whatever loss our sin has caused. When we do this, when we do this, we show that God's grace is truly at work among us because grace, when it is at work among us, teaches us to actually deal with our sin, to say no to it, to confess it when we have done it, to repent of it when we have done it, and to find God's healing and righteousness in our lives. Amen, people of God. And so while the discipline here came directly from the Lord, the impact on the community was to produce a fear that would encourage an honest dealing with sin. And so God didn't strike everyone dead, right, who sinned in the church, and He doesn't do that in our day either. Glory be to God. <laughs> but He does call us to an honest dealing with our sin that is actually rooted in His grace for us and His love for us because God knows the destructive impact of sin on our personal relationships with each other and on our public witness as the people of God. God's grace is there to help you say no and to confess and repent when you have fallen. Amen, people of God. Grace and generosity, grace and sin. Lastly, grace and power. 
Grace produces profound generosity, encourages us to deal with our sin, but it empowers us actually for ministry to those around us. That no one dare join them <laughs> seems in conflict, right, with the very next verse that says that more than ever, believers were being added to the community, multitudes of both men and women. And the point there is that pretenders stayed away. <laughs> those who were not really committed did not join. And that's not a bad thing. A church whose life and witness demonstrated by God's work among them causes folk to examine themselves before joining the body of Christ is a good thing. But notice that despite those who stayed away, God kept adding to the church. The church kept growing. And what is more, listen to this, the community seeing the work of God's grace in His church, we're bringing people from the towns around Jerusalem to the church to be healed. So, you think about that. The community saw the work of God's grace in His church, both in its generosity and in, its, and in, in, in how it dealt with sin, how God dealt with sin in the camp. And it didn't turn people off. They brought people to the church to be healed. In other words, there was a notable power at work in the community, a power rooted in God's grace that was transforming people's lives. And it was a power first mentioned in verse 33 of chapter 4 where we read, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. You see, the power in the church started with the preaching of the resurrected Christ. Indeed, it was His resurrection from the dead that had breathed life into this community through the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon them. They were a community empowered by that resurrection, and so the Spirit gave them power to testify to it. They were graced, if you will, to proclaim the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And they were not only graced to proclaim, but graced to bear witness to it through the transformative acts of healing done through the apostles. Now, we often look at the, the outward visible signs and wonders recorded in the Scriptures and marvel, and rightly so. The day is coming when this physical world will be transformed and there will be no signs of death in it. It's one of the things that, the, that these healings pointed toward, but, but don't miss the other display of power that, that is resident in these healings, a display of power that is still meant to be at work in the church today. Don't miss the power, this powerful display of people turning from the darkness of their own sin and putting their faith in the resurrected Jesus. Don't miss, don't miss that some among those who were healed physically were now through that healing restored to life in the community, could now participate in the life of the community and contribute to its good. The same power that turns people from their sins is at work among us. The same power that welcomes the physically, mentally, socially, spiritually broken in and frees them into being full members of God's kingdom, that power is still at work among us. The power that raises from the dead spiritually and, and will one day raise us from the dead physically is still at work in the church. Why would we not want to bring those who are hurting the message of God's power that is at work in Jesus? Why would we not want to bring the broken of the world into this community of God's people? God's healing is here in Jesus. How can we not go out to the highways 
of our community and preach the Jesus that restores to life. It's the calling that's on you and on us as the people of God, and the power of God is at work among us as the people of God. We are not just playing church. We are not just coming here to, to sing some songs and throw our hands up and, and, and then walk out of this door and, and you know, and, and go back home and, you know, watch TV or do whatever we're doing. We come here because we know the power of God has saved us from our sins, and we believe that same power is at work among us to save other people from their sins. There's power here within the church to bring healing, the healing that our communities actually need. The Spirit is on you. The grace of God is on you to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus in the way you speak and in the way you live so that the people around you will know that there's a God in heaven and that His Son is Jesus Christ our Lord. And that there's a Spirit of God who will bring healing their, to their lives if they put their trust in this Savior and this King. So I just got to ask you this morning, who have you brought to Jesus? Who are you bringing to Jesus? Who do you know that needs to be brought to Him? Or who do you know that you need to bring Jesus to? Who through our testimony knows the Lord? Who have we brought to Him to be healed? God's grace includes the power to transform lives. I got to believe that that gangbanger's life can be transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. I got to believe that that power is at work to be able to transform that life. I got to believe that. Gotta believe that for all of the people in this community who are hurting, who do not know the Lord. We who have been delivered, we know the Lord delivers, right? Do you know the Lord delivers? We who have been healed, you know the Lord heals, right? We who have been forgiven, you know the Lord forgives, right? We who have been saved, know that the Lord saves, right? How then can we not bring people to Jesus to transform? people who need healing and forgiveness and salvation. And so the call here is to bring to people the good news of God, God's grace in Jesus, the one who's, who has the power to transform them. And listen to this, if non-believers were bringing people to Jesus to be healed by Him, to be restored by Him, how can we not? <laughs> who stand in this place and jump up and down. Well, something well, we're Presbyterians. And wave our hands. How can we not bring people to the Lord? And bring the Lord to people. And tell them, I got something that can change your whole life. And it's the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord wants to transform people. They need them. So ask the Lord to give you confidence. Just ask Him to give you confidence where the opportunity presents itself, where the opportunity presents itself. Ask God to give you confidence to tell people about the Lord Jesus, to bring them to the Lord who can change their lives. Because grace 
makes us generous. <laughs> it helps us deal with our sin. And it also transforms not just our lives, but the lives of anybody <laughs> who puts their faith in Jesus. Great grace was upon them all. And that grace is upon us today. And it's here to produce the same kind of generosity to enable us to deal honestly with our sins and to empower us to proclaim and act for healing for our neighbors. What an amazing grace is ours. And it's ours through Jesus Christ the Lord. And so I pray this morning that this grace will fill our hearts, that we will believe in it, that we will rest in it, that we might be the people God is calling us to be in our world. Amen, people of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we conclude this sermon and as we enter into communion, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, through your Word, preached and now about to be visibly demonstrated, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would impress upon our hearts the truth of your Word that you would affirm to us that promise of your grace that is ours in Jesus Christ the Lord. As we eat this bread this morning and drink this cup, Lord, don't let us just go through the motions or through the ritual. Let, let us actually, as we eat and drink, believe that we are eating and drinking that promise of your grace that is ours. Lord, I pray for your people this morning as they, as they walk out of this place having heard your word and having fed upon your word, I pray, Lord God, that you by the power of your spirit would help them to believe that word and to receive it, to know that the grace of God is theirs and ours together in Jesus Christ our Lord. So now, Lord, anoint this time in our service where you meet with us through communion, Lord, I pray, I pray, speak to us again through your word visibly represented at this table in these elements. I pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.